National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. Sometimes we're even joined by guests who are overseas, and that is the case today. Uh, We're returning to the topic of the Islamic Republic of Iran for today's show, uh, primarily because it remains a heated issue for so many reasons. Uh, We'll also explore Iran's relationships across the Middle East and its evolving ties with both Russia and China. With us to discuss the Islamic Republic of Iran is Esfandyar Batman Gelic. Esfandyar Batman Gelic is is the founder and CEO of the Bourse and Bazaar Foundation, a London-based think tank focused on economic diplomacy, Economic Development and Economic Justice in the Middle East and Central Asia. Uh, Yar has published uh, peer-reviewed research on Iranian political economy, social history, and public health, as well as extensive commentary on Iranian politics and economics. He has also conducted extensive research on sanctions and is a core member of the Advancing Humanitarianism, Humanitarianism Through Sanctions Refinement Initiative, which is dedicated to mitigating the unintended humanitarian harms of major sanctions programs. Esfandiar Batman Yelich, th- welcome to National Security This Week. Thanks, John. It's great to be here, and uh, I'm excited for our discussion. And so you're sitting in uh, in London, is that right? That's right. Uh, and unsurprisingly, it's not sunny today, even though <laughs> we're in the middle of summer. <laughs> well, it's a little chilly and uh, cool here in Minnesota today as well, uh, but that's okay because we've been a little hot this year and we're in a bit of a drought. Uh, so, Espandiar, I, like, I want to start the show by learning a little bit more about you as our guest. I like to start that way. Uh, it sort of helps our uh, audience to to learn more about you. What what attracted you uh, to study international relations and eventually to founding uh, Bors and Bazar Foundation? So, I think it was a couple things. Um, I grew up uh, in the D.C. area in Northern Virginia, so you are immediately thinking about you know the our nation's capital and the center of uh, sort of. U.S. power in the world, but uh, maybe more importantly than that, my parents were both born in Iran, and um, so they arrived in the U.S. because of a big event of international relations, the 1979 uh, Islamic Revolution, which also represented a rupture in U.S.-Iran ties. And when I was growing up, you know, I think from a pretty young age, I was vaguely aware that this thing had happened in Uh, in Iran that led my family to make its way to the U.S. And I think that sort of made me attuned to issues in international relations more broadly. I ended up studying uh, political science with a focus on international relations while in college and uh, then got more and more interested in Iran. And that's taken me basically over the last 10 years to where I am today, which is running uh, this small think tank. Where where did you do your undergrad uh... Uh, at Columbia University in New York. Nice, nice. And graduate work? Uh, I, <laughs> my my mom gave me a really hard time about uh, doing a master's, and I'm uh, very proud that she's coming over to London next week because I just uh, I'll be graduating 
after doing a degree at the London School of Economics. Fantastic. So well, finally congratulations. Yeah. Check that off. Yeah. <laughs> congratulations. Thank you. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about uh, about Borson Bazaar Foundation. What, what kind of research and publishing do you do at the think tank? Uh, what areas of international relations are the primary focus at uh, Borson Bazaar? Yeah, so we're a, it's a small think tank, uh, donor-funded, and we were set up because I think I recognized that there was a gap in the kind of research that was being produced about Iran and the Middle East more generally. There are many very reputable, large, uh, impressive think tanks, particularly those based in Washington, that focus on the Middle East, uh, either through dedicated programs or centers. But they tend to look at the region through the lens of uh, politics and security and economic issues are always an afterthought. And when it came to understanding more about what was happening in Iran uh, over the last decade and U.S.-Iran relations, um, one of the things that became clear was that economic issues were really important, especially because U.S. sanctions were such a big part of the policy uh, environment. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But the existing kind of crop of think tanks weren't well set up to produce economic research. And that's really where my interest was. And so we have tried to fill that gap, not only by producing uh, the research that looks at issues like economic development and economic diplomacy, but also by trying to create space for younger scholars and analysts who are at the beginning of their careers and are thinking about these issues, but don't necessarily find a place where they can plug in to um, organizations that are primarily focused on national security or politics, um, we give them a little bit of support at the early part of their career to get some of their really important research and ideas out there. And I think that's something that's been pretty cool about the last few years of developing the foundation. So you're almost like a kind of like an incubator, uh, sorta, to help help uh, baby fledgling uh, researchers in this in this area of economics uh, really get their feet under them. Something like that. I mean, it is basically a little startup. It's just uh, it is a think tank, so it's not you know lavishly funded by venture capitalists. But um, you know, we obviously really enjoy what we do, and I think we're doing important work. Yeah, and, and I would tell you, this show, uh, throughout the you know two and a half years that we've been on uh, KYMN Radio, uh, we, we constantly return back to this idea of the tools of national power and how they're used in, in statecraft, both the art and the science of statecraft. And those tools are diplomacy, uh, the power of information, military, and, and economic power. And frankly, it's very easy to talk about diplomacy and military power uh, and and unfortunately, I'll, I'll I'll be the first one to admit it. I don't I don't cover enough on the use of economic power and how vitally important it is uh, to achieve national security objectives and and frankly to help stabilize uh, regions around the world, uh, develop international trade, uh, those kinds of things. So your think tank is focused very heavily in this area on the economic side. Uh, is that a, is that a good summary? Yeah, it is. And I mean, really, for me, what I think I've come to realize, having tried to study about uh, what has happened in Iran over the last decade. You know, my consciousness of the Iran issue really started around 2010, 11, 12, which is precisely the period in which the Obama administration embarked on what I think is a very underappreciated uh, kind of project, which is for the first time, the U.S. was exercising this very unique privilege that is unique to kind of American hegemony, which is that 
the U.S. is the only country in the world that can fight a war without actually using any military power. And what I mean by that is the um, Treasury Department, uh, the Commerce Department, and different uh, agencies of the U.S. government in the last um, basically 20 years developed these capacities for what we could call financial warfare. And Iran was really the, the key test case uh, for the development of those powers. And they were developed in the service of diplomacy. So the Obama administration was imposing sanctions on Iran, in particular, uh, very significant sanctions in 2012, when Iran's central bank was placed under sanctions and the Iran's uh, oil exports were placed under a uh, U.S. embargo and then the Europeans uh, joined in on that effort. But the effect of that was basically to really isolate the Iranian economy from the global economy in ways that we had not seen before. And the research that uh, I do basically is looking at not only what that means from the standpoint of the ability of the U.S. to advance its national security interests, but also trying to understand what the effects are in Iran itself, and there are many effects when you take uh, such significant measures, and how those effects relate to the goals that U.S. policymakers might have for the sanctions, the goals that they state publicly, and then the goals that might be more implicit in um, in basically the strategies that they're trying to use to, to, let's say, get Iran to make concessions that might matter for U.S. national security. I'm glad you brought up uh, U.S. Department of the Treasury. Uh, on this show a while back, uh, one of my guests, uh, Juan Zarati, who had been uh, in the George uh, W. Bush administration, of course, uh, had, had gone over there and was a spearhead in trying to develop a lot of those capabilities that you just talked about uh, way back uh, post 9-11 in, in an effort mm -hmm. for the United States to sort of lead the global uh, fight against uh, Salafi jihadism. But uh, Juan Zarati explained exactly what those tools are that uh, Treasury offers, and you just uh, reiterated all those same things with regards to how they're used against Iran. It's a, it's a fascinating approach to uh, exercising power in the, inter in the international arena. Yeah, I mean, Juan, uh, he has an excellent book called Treasury's War, um, where he details basically that effort. And it really was initially, I would say, this idea of trying to use um, sort of the financial firepower of the United States to deny resources to non-state groups, so terrorist groups, making it harder for them to fund their activities and uh, the U.S. using different kinds of designations and sanctions regulations to constrain channels of money potentially flowing to those groups. But around the same time as we get from the, Obama, from the Bush administration to the Obama administration, concerns began to grow around Iran's nuclear program. And there was a, basically a breakdown between, uh, in relations between the West and Iran. And you know, I think in the early part of the Obama administration, they were trying to figure out how do we deal with what they saw as a rising threat from Iran. Um, and it was pretty clear, given the administration's politics and the need to kind of address the fact that U.S. the U.S. public was tired of, you know, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and it was becoming clear that those were perhaps turning into kind of quagmires, that something other than a military solution needed to be on the table. And to make the diplomacy more credible or more uh, forceful, uh, there was this idea that sanctions could be used to gain leverage. We would impose economic pain on Iran, 
And in order to get alleviate that pain, Iran would have to make concessions in that uh, early stage of negotiations pretty exclusively on um, by accepting constraints on their nuclear program. Um, so there's a direct line you can draw from, you know, Juan's innovations to kind of the issues that I'm looking at today. Um, you know, it'd be great to sort of have a conversation with him at some point uh, directly and see if he expected us to end up where we ended up. <laughs> I suspect not because there was a lot of unintended consequences and and things that um, have come to light about the limitations of sanctions, you know, they're, they're a very good tool. And in some ways they are preferable to military, uh, any kind of military engagement, but they are far from a perfect tool in their current application. And a lot of um, new challenges have emerged vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran because of the decade of financial uh, pressure that we've put on the Iranian economy. And I definitely want to dive into that a little bit more on, on the Iran side. Uh, very quickly, uh, before we uh, go to a, a quick station ID break, uh, Borson Bazaar Foundation, it's not just the Middle East, it's also Central Asia as well. Is there connections there between the two regions? Yeah, so th I think the idea there was that we've often thought about the Middle East and Central Asia as two zones. Part of that is because Central Asian republics used to be part of the Soviet Union, so they were literally behind an iron curtain. Um, and in my own travels in the region, in Iran, in Central Asia, uh, you start to realize that what we imagine as two separate zones are actually one neighborhood. And so when we're thinking about the uh, particularly economic diplomacy that's taking place in the Middle East, uh, it's very natural uh, to start looking at Central Asia as well. Not only has Iran extended its relations in recent years in that region, but also um, a lot of the Gulf states, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, they're uh, connecting with Central Asia in a new way. And that transformation is, is I think, pretty significant because suddenly these two um, sets of bordering countries that we thought as completely different zones uh, are becoming an integrated area, and that will have political and economic uh, ramifications for how the U.S. should also position itself uh, in the area amongst the countries. Yeah, most people, when we think of Iran, they, they think mostly of the connection to uh, to the Gulf and to Iraq and, you know, across the the Persian Gulf to, to Saudi Arabia, they forget about this extensive border with Turkmenistan <laughs> and yeah, also border, bordering with Afghanistan and, and, uh, and, and whatnot. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Esfandiar Batman-Yelic, and we're discussing Iran and the Middle East. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Okay, so Yar, let's say uh, this for the second segment. I want to dive in and really focus in on Iran. Uh, you study economic diplomacy, economic development, and economic justice at Borson Bazaar uh, Foundation. Uh, Bazaar, excuse me, uh, pr proper pronunciation is important. What does Iran's economy look like right now? It's not a pretty picture. Um, I think what you can say is that it's a combination of stagnation and change. So what I mean by that is, you know, the I referred earlier to the sanctions that were imposed in 2012 by the Obama administration on the central bank, on the oil sector. If you look at different ways of kind of measuring Iran's economic development, you could look at economic growth through GDP, you could look at um, the income level of ordinary people, you could look at the trade relations that Iran has with other countries around the world. 
2012 was a real uh, turning point, and Iran uh, went from being on one trajectory that was broadly positive and in line with a lot of other developing countries around the world of a similar composition. Iran can be compared to a place like Turkey, for example. But after those sanctions were imposed, it was pushed onto a much more negative uh, trajectory. And essentially, Iran's economy, from a development standpoint, has stagnated for the last 10 years. Uh, industrial output is pretty flat. The oil sector hasn't been able to gain new technology to increase its uh, productivity. And this means that, you know, Iran is much poorer as an economy than it otherwise would have been. But it has not in in fact, gone through the kind of economic collapse that some people might have anticipated when the sanctions were first being imposed by the Obama administration. And then those same sanctions were basically reimposed by the Trump administration in 2018, when uh, the U.S. withdrew unilaterally from a nuclear agreement that had been the successful outcome of the Obama-era diplomacy with Iran. And in both scenarios, there was this expectation that Iran's economy would not be able to take the pressure and would start to fall apart. But fundamentally, and the way I explain it to policymakers when we have this conversation, is that there's an expectation that the resilience of an economy to sanctions is going to be a top-down phenomenon. The state is going to say, we're under attack economically, and we're going to organize ourselves in a way to mitigate all of these uh, different kinds of economic pressures. We'll change who we're trading with, we'll defend our currency, we'll reduce our reliance on the West. But in reality, the Iranian state, I think like a lot of countries that go through these pressures, was already not an exemplar of economic management before um, the uh, sanctions were imposed. It was probably a pretty average performer. Iran was a country where between 1994 and 2012, the economy grew every year. There was no recession in that period, but the performance was volatile and probably Iran could have done even better uh, if it had been uh, better managed. What happened after the sanctions were imposed is that the state tried to adapt, but did a, a sort of um, uh, had a mixed bag in terms of its policies to adapt to the sanctions pressure. And the resilience, the reason that the economy stagnated, did not collapse, was really because households and firms um, made they they worked really hard to adapt to the new reality. So the simple way to explain it is. There are 27 million people just about in Iran's workforce. Um, they wake up every day and they know that they have a really difficult economic environment. Inflation in Iran is around 50% uh, on an annual basis. And that's really devastating for a household. But it doesn't mean that people just give up. They don't just put their hands up and say, it's too hard. We're not going to start uh, go to work or we're not going to try and make an income. They will try and make a way to keep their business in business. They will try and uh, find a way to keep, uh, you know, putting bread on the table for their family. And so the idea is that a bottom-up resilience has played a role in making sure that the economic collapse in Iran did not materialize. That being said, uh, I think one of the things that our recent research is, is sort of uncovering is that within this picture of economic stagnation, the economy is not on the growth trajectory it was before. 
there has been a kind of transformation and it's a transformation that is probably negative and also probably not uh, conducive to um, the kinds of U.S. foreign policy goals that uh, you know were in mind when these sanctions were applied. Specifically, what I'm talking about is that it appears that uh, firms, government entities, the economic elite have done a very good job as part of their adaptation to the sanctions pressure at pushing a lot of the pressure uh, away from them and onto ordinary households. Mm. So the to give you one statistic to demonstrate this, between 2010 and 2020, the average Iranian household reduced its uh, annual consumption, the amount of money it was spending every year, by 20%. Yeah. Because with high inflation, wages weren't keeping up, and people were just basically getting poorer, and they had to tighten the belt. But Iran's economy did not contract in that period by 20%. And so something suggests that Households are bearing the brunt more than the rest of the economy. And that raises an important question for U.S. policymakers, folks like Juan. Um, you know, if the goal of sanctions was to deny resources to the Iranian state to engage in activities that the U.S. considered uh, malign or against our national security interests, um, who's really paying the price for these measures? And that's one of the things our foundation is trying to explore in more detail. That's that is a great that is a great point. Uh, really good point. Uh, l let me ask you this. Uh, so I've had a number of guests on over uh, over the, the course of this show talking about Iran. It's my understanding that there. Are, so you have the average citizenry, 27 million people working, you know, in the workforce, uh, business owners, uh, you know, members, you know, laborers, etc. But you also have a construct within the government itself uh, that is, in, in fact, you know, part of the national security apparatus that runs its own business operations. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what we're talking about here is uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC. And from uh, really from the period where the U.S. first started imposing sanctions on Iran, the IRGC was singled out as the entity that was responsible for a lot of the threat uh, to U.S. allies in, in the Middle East, so particularly countries like uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Saudi Arabia, also to actually U.S. forces deployed in Iraq. Um, and what has happened over the last sort of decade is the U.S. has tried to use its sanctions to constrain the financial resources available to the IRGC. This is sort of done in two ways. The first is to actually create pressure on government budgets in Iran. So Iran is a major oil exporter, and one of the key features of the sanctions programs has been to try and push down and limit Iran's oil exports. At the moment, there's only one major country that is still buying Iranian oil, and that's China. Um, and the Chinese are willing to kind of skirt our sanctions more so than any other country. Um, but and so there has been an effect on Iranian uh, government uh, spending because oil revenues constituted the lion's share of the government budget. And so if you're able to reduce those revenues, there'll be less money to go around and presumably a uh, force like the IRGC would get uh, a smaller um, uh, defense budget allocation from uh, the central government. 
In addition, as you said, the IRGC, both because of the way it was functioning before the sanctions really tightened, but also as part of their response to the sanctions, has increasingly uh, carved out a role for itself in Iran's economy. You often hear the claim that the IRGC controls Iran's economy. I disagree with that assessment. Um, I think the way to think about it is that the IRGC is probably at this point the single most uh, single largest economic network in Iran's economy. But those 27 million people I spoke about earlier who wake up every day and go to work, a very tiny percentage of them are going to work for IRGC owned or controlled uh, companies. I mean, most most of Iran's economy is actually small and medium sized enterprises. And that's something that's kind of a rule of thumb for uh, similar uh, countries at a similar level of development around the world. But the IRGC does have this significant economic influence. But more to the point, I actually think that the IRGC has burnished its role in Iran politically uh, because it has fashioned itself as this uh, set of institutions that are responsible for, quote unquote, the defense of the country. So alongside the U.S. sanctions program, the deterioration in U.S.-Iran relations and also um, rising tensions with other countries in the region between 2016 and actually really earlier this year, there were significant tensions between Iran and countries in the region like Saudi Arabia, like the United Arab Emirates, and of course, Israel. Um, the idea that the region was always on the verge of a military conflict uh, was something that in some ways made the IRGC more important in terms of uh, the idea that you would have an empowered set of uh, institutions. And the IRGC is more than just one body. It's different uh, organizations and different groups that are under this um umbrella. And in some ways, that securitized environment has created more space, I think, for the IRGC to come to dominate. Additionally, I would say that at this point, um, one of the things that's important for understanding whether a group like the IRGC has power in Iran is, is there another group or set of groups that can counterbalance the power of the IRGC? And for a long time, we actually did have that. So from uh, 2013 uh, until uh, basically 2021, uh, there was the administration of Hassan Rouhani. So he was a, a president elected in 2013 with a significant electoral mandate. Um, his own background was actually, he's a cleric. If you've seen a picture of him, he used to wear a white turban, uh, but he was also the head of the intelligence ministry and a member of the Supreme National Security Council prior to becoming president. So he had this unique quality of being from the security apparatus, being a cleric, and having been elected in a high turnout election where he won the la a landslide vote. And he won a vote with a promise of repairing the relations with the West and basically getting the sanctions lifted. He was a bit of a reformer. A sense, he was a, a kind of a reformer, right? He, I would say he was reform-minded. Okay. <laughs> so the, the distinction is that there are reformist political parties in Iran, and he wasn't actually a member of those parties, but he was supported by those parties. They were part of his bloc. Okay. Um, and so in some ways, he was the, 
the kind of consensus candidate among everyone who wanted to push Iran towards a direction of let's get Iran, you know, to uh, fix its diplomatic um, uh, issues with the West and its isolation. And then let's focus on reforming the country domestically so that society is, let's say, more equal and welfare is better and the economy is actually developing. Now, he had some successes there. The timing was pretty good because he overlapped at least one term with uh, President Obama, who was similarly interested in trying to repair the U.S.-Iran relationship. In 2015, in the summer, a nuclear agreement was adopted called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which basically exchanged sanctions relief for Iran, um, not the U.S. primary sanctions. So the U.S. was still basically saying U.S. businesses cannot work with Iran, but it was opening the door to non-U.S. businesses to engage with Iran without having repercussions for their access to the U.S. financial system. So it's a very important and misunderstood um, sort of aspect of what kind of sanctions relief was offered. But that was provided on the basis that Iran accepted what is actually the strongest uh, regiment of monitoring and verification of a nuclear program ever devised. And the deal was uh, implemented in January of 2016. Now, this was a big triumph for Rouhani. The problem being that in November of that year, you basically had um, the, the re reality that there would be a new president uh, in the U.S., and that president was elected on a campaign promise to tear up the nuclear deal. So you had basically 11 months where the deal was functional in the way that people believed that it could have a long future. And from that point forward, the Rouhani administration and that moderate bloc that I was uh, talking about was in a politically vulnerable position because the hardliners in Iran, including senior figures in the IRGC and those who are politically aligned with them, could look at the fact that the new U.S. president, President Trump, was promising to tear up the deal as basically evidence that you can't trust the Americans and we need to think uh, beyond just having a deal with the U.S. We need to basically resist the U.S. in the full meaning of that term. Yeah. And so going back to the influence of the IRGC, Essentially, what happened is there was a group that was a counterweight to them. But by the end of the Trump administration, uh, that group was significantly discredited. The Rouhani, uh, the Rouhani government made a Hail Mary attempt to restore the nuclear deal in the first kind of six months of Biden's term. But uh, eventually his second term ended. And in the summer of 2021, you had an election for a new president a president who was a hardliner and elected in an election with very low turnout. And this is part of the transformation that I spoke about before. Iran is politically a different country than it was 10 years ago. And my contention is that U.S. policy actually has played a significant part in influencing that. Uh, so we're going to take just a very short break, about a minute-long break, to recognize our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit, uh, S. Van Der batman We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit series continues this summer with summits in Raleigh-Durham, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Kansas City. 
You'll hear from leaders in the field of cybersecurity, including business, government, infrastructure, military, homeland security, law enforcement, and more. For a list of dates and keynote speakers or to register, visit CybersecuritySummit.com. The Cybersecurity Summit Series, connecting senior-level executives with renowned information security experts and cutting-edge solution providers to protect today's enterprise. Visit CybersecuritySummit.com for details. And we're back here on National Security This Week with our guest, Esfandiar Batman-Gelich, uh, with the Bors and Bazar Foundation, uh, think tank out of uh, London. Uh, so, uh, Yar, before we took a quick break there, we were talking about uh, sanctions. I have one more sanctions-related question for you. Uh, maybe we could keep it tight, uh, three, three, four minutes at the most. Uh, that There's been a very strong protest movement inside Iran uh, over the last uh, year or so, uh, really working to try and change the nation from within. That protest movement began when a young woman of Kurdish ethnicity was uh, was taken into custody uh, for not wearing the hijab properly. Uh, she was beaten, and, and she died. Uh, Some protesters are calling now for the removal, actual removal, of the current religious government in favor of replacing it with a truly uh, democratic uh, 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 government structure. I don't know if that's going to (laughs) happen. There's an awful lot of power uh, invested in the current system. How have sanctions negatively impacted the protest movement? I think it's a really uh, key question, and it's one that, you know, in my view, there hasn't been enough of an effort to answer. So the protests that started in September of last year were really significant for a number of reasons. They were primarily led by women and ethnic minorities in Iran. There was a lot of uh, cross-class solidarity that was demonstrated. There were protest activities across the country. And it really did feel like there was a revolutionary spirit. The political demands of the protesters were not just for reform or for some additional economic benefits. It was an expression of deep dissatisfaction with uh, how the Islamic Republic had really broken the social contract with um, the Iranian people. Despite all of that, I think the 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 aspect of the protest that hasn't gotten enough scrutiny is why did they not uh, become larger and more significant in their scale? So you have this intense righteous anger uh, that came after the killing of Masa Amini, but also was related to a lot of other more deep-seated frustrations. And you have these uh, very clear signs that across Iranian society, there's dissatisfaction. But in the end, you did not have the scenes or the reality of protests like we saw in 2009, where you had, for example, a million people in the streets in Tehran. Part of the answer there is obviously the repression. The Iranian government has gotten very good at using the tools of uh, state security to repress protests, arresting thousands, uh, and also using violent force in the streets, which led to the deaths of hundreds of protesters. But at the same time, I think there's evidence to suggest that it is more difficult to mobilize when you are in an economically precarious position. And this is where the issue of the protest connects to a lot of the research that we're doing. I had an essay in Foreign Affairs earlier this year where I sort of look at some of these questions. And I think ultimately what is happening here is that you have... Uh, a society in Iran that has a strong history of mobilizing 
uh, that of creating groups, creating a political movement from the grassroots and finding ways to really push the state and make claims against the state that things should be different. But it's getting harder and harder to do that because if more and more households are basically concerned about their daily bread, it's difficult to engage in the work of mobilizing and it's difficult to think long term about, you know, how do you build a political movement to really bring about fundamental change? There's a long kind of history of um, research around the role of resource mobilization in protest movements. And, you know, I think our own research hasn't provided any definitive answers yet, but I think it's something that deserves a lot more attention because if indeed the economic pressure we've placed on Iran has made it more difficult for the Iranian people to uh, advance their political aims, that raises a big question mark about you know whether or not that bottom-up pressure can actually lead to changes in state policy, especially those policies that we think are again, uh, countervailing to U.S. national security interests. So you mentioned, uh, we, we've been talking quite a bit uh, this show about about the sanctions regime that's been placed on Iran. Now, there, there have been sanctions really since the 79 revolution uh, in some way, shape, or form uh, on Iran. Over the last decade, the really tremendously intense pressures uh, that the United States uh, and you know our allies and friends in the international community have placed on Iran— uh, the the country that's really ignoring those things is China. <laughs> and China has made a significant investment of time and energy on the diplomatic arena, on the economic development front in the Middle East. And certainly, you mentioned it yourself, they're still buying Iranian oil. Uh, Iran has also had a, a, a nice, uh, cozy relationship with uh, Vladimir Putin in, in Moscow. So a couple of questions here. Maybe I could get you to you know take about five minutes or so to talk this through. Uh what is the role that China is now playing in the region and certainly connections uh, with Iran? Uh, I, it's my understanding that the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, the, the the belt side that goes through um, Central Asia kind of ends in Tehran <laughs> very conveniently. So there's a yeah. huge economic upside uh, for Iran on that side. And then secondarily, the diplomatic role that uh, that China sort of played in in rebuilding a relationship between Tehran and, uh, and, well, Iran and Saudi Arabia. They now have diplomatic relations again, and they, they dropped out of that for almost a decade, I guess. Mm -hmm. Please, go ahead. So uh, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, you know, I think there's so much more attention to China's role in the Middle East uh, in, in, in the last couple of years. And I think um, what we're starting to understand is both the potential for those relationships and their limitations. So to wind back a little bit to 20, uh, 2012, when the US sanctions were really being tightened on Iran, from those very early days, Iranian officials said, you know what, a certain group of them were convinced that we don't need to work with the West, China is a rising power, Russia is a rising power, we can just turn to the East and turn towards the East became a strategy that even the Supreme Leader um, would uh, kind of uh, invoke in, in a number of his speeches about how Iran was trying to adapt to sanctions pressure. The turn to the East strategy has been a failure for Iran. Um, and the reality is that China has found a kind of a floor to its economic relationship with Iran in terms of 
a minimum level of engagement that it's willing to pursue while Iran is under significant secondary sanctions. And that is basically that China right now, uh, following the Trump administration's move in May of 2019 to, in, in their words, drive Iran's oil exports to zero, China said, you know what, we're going to keep buying this oil. It arrives in China sort of roundabout way. If you look at Chinese customs data, there's a big fat zero for the line where Iran is, is declaring its oil um, exports to China. And what you see is that that oil is actually being booked as oil coming from the UAE and Malaysia. So it's it's this kind of funny situation where everyone knows the oil is going to China. And it's it's actually an increasing volume in recent months, around 1.6 million barrels per day, which is a anyone who's in the energy sector knows that's a pretty significant volume. Um, but it's not being declared openly. And I think that ambiguity points to the reality that uh, China is giving Iran an economic lifeline, but it is not um, Iran's get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to resisting sanctions pressure. This is even clearer when you look at where Iran is relative to other countries in the region vis-a-vis -vis its relationship with China in the area of trade and in foreign direct investment. Um, in 2021, I wrote a paper with uh, Lucille Greer for the Wilson Center, and we basically did a first-of-its-kind comparative view, saying there's a lot of focus on the China-Iran relationship. What does that look like in context? What's the Iraq-China relationship, the Saudi Arabia-China relationship? And what we decided or determined in the end is that Iran is what you could call the last among equals. <laughs> so China's policy in the Middle East is to treat everyone equally. And in fact, they use the same uh, framework agreement called a Comprehensive Strategic Partnership with all of the major countries in the Middle East. They sign a document saying, this is our overall kind of structure of our relationship. So Iran has one, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, the UAE. But Iran's is the least functional because at the end of the day, Chinese multinational companies they're kind of like American or European multinational companies. They can't afford to just recklessly engage in Iran and risk uh, U.S. sanctions blowback. And so you have not seen any, there is there is not a single significant Chinese infrastructure investment in Iran today. Um, and that in that regard, Iran is really falling behind a lot of other countries in the region and in the global south generally. Uh, because it's not being able to take advantage of China's arrival as a principal economic partner uh, from the standpoint of global development. So if, if, I, if I take your meaning from this, China has entered into individual bilateral economic relations which e with each of the countries in the Middle East. Iran is at the bottom rung there. Uh, but that means that if there's any sort of hiccup in the situation, the Chinese can pull out of that bilateral relationship much easier than if there was some sort of regional comprehensive economic agreement between China and the region. Yeah, and, and part of that reflects that, you know, the, the economic um, zone in the Middle East is surprisingly uh, disintegrated. You know, countries in the Middle East, they, they almost exist like a set of islands. You wouldn't imagine that they share borders. There's very little trade between them. There's actually very little infrastructure links. You can't take a train from anywhere to anywhere pretty much in the Middle East. It, it has, it's a feature of how those countries developed. Basically, the model of economic development was 
we're going to pump oil out of the ground and send it to the U.S. Um, and if that's what if that's what's bringing you riches, you don't need to trade with your neighbor. If anything, you're competing with your neighbor because they're also pumping oil. And so you want to decide on colluding with them so they don't undercut you on price. And that's why we have something like OPEC. So the region is now waking up to the idea that a new level of economic development is needed. You can't just rely on exporting oil. You have to develop trade amongst the countries. And crucially, this is also related to the changing U.S. role in the Middle East. So the U.S. used to be the principal buyer of Middle Eastern oil. Today, the principal buyer of Middle Eastern oil is China. And part of the reason why the Chinese need to keep everyone in the region happy is that if there was some significant escalation where suddenly it wasn't possible to take tankers in through the Strait of Hormuz, this very narrow bit of water by the Persian Gulf, to pick up that oil and bring it to China, it would have devastating consequences for China's economy, and it would be very difficult to basically replace that supply. And there was a kind of uh-oh moment in the summer of 2019, when precisely in that period when the Trump administration was trying to drive Iran's oil exports down to zero, in the early months, they were fairly successful because the Chinese uh, buyers, refiners, didn't know in those uh, very um, first weeks how to continue getting the Iranian oil and whether that's something they even wanted to do. And so publicly, Rouhani, the Iranian president, who we all recognize as a more moderate figure, he declared, if we're not going to be able to export our oil no one will be able to export their oil through the Persian Gulf. And it was something of a threat, but it wasn't an empty threat. And they demonstrated it through two attacks. There was a series of four tankers off the coast of the UAE that were mined, not to sink them, but just to show that if you wanted to hit those tankers, they're sort of sitting ducks. And more dramatically, there was a, a drone and cruise missile attack on uh, two facilities owned by Aramco, the Saudi oil company, that took a significant portion of Aramco's refining capacity offline. And when that happened, not only did it demonstrate that there was no U.S. deterrence to that sort of action, but also it made clear that the U.S. wasn't going to be able to respond very quickly to that sort of attack. And the Trump administration didn't take a dramatic action immediately. And this was a wake-up call for countries in the region. In the subsequent months, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, which had cut ties with Iran in 2016, quietly reopened direct negotiations with the Iranians to lower the temperature. And those culminated in uh, decisions last year and this year to reopen embassies with Iran. And the recent Saudi decision to normalize ties with Iran was, as you mentioned, brokered by China. And this is for two reasons. One, the Saudis need a kind of guarantor uh, to kind of make sure that that deal has someone, a third party that's going to keep both sides accountable. But also it's very much in China's interest because they need to keep that steady supply of energy and the way that they can do that absent their military footprint in the region is to support diplomacy that lowers the temperature. So we're in a de-escalation period in the Middle East, which is quite new and I would say very positive. And strangely, you can draw a direct line from this back to th those fateful incidents in 2019 when everyone sort of realized how bad things could get if 
economic pressure placed on Iran and escalation around the security situation translates into actual conflict. Uh, so, Yar, we have about 10 minutes left on the show today. This has been absolutely fascinating. I can't believe how fast time goes by. There were about four more questions that I wanted to ask you, but they're all very okay. complex. Uh, instead, what I'm going to do is kind of quickly uh, on the fly wrap these uh, together. Uh, the competition between the United States and China for influence in the region. If you were to advise the Biden administration right now about steps to take, uh, to kind of bolster uh, U.S. position vis-a-vis -vis the countries in the region, maybe not so much block out China's influence, but uh, maybe tamp down a little bit uh, on Chinese influence in the region. What, what, what kind of ideas would you offer up to the Biden administration today to consider? So I think my first instinct would be that for a long time, the motivating idea between around U.S. policy uh, in the region has been to deprive, let's say, U.S. enemies or irritants in the region of resources and provide a very limited kind of resources to the countries that we consider our allies. So basically, we've been applying sanctions to countries we don't like and providing arms to countries that we do like. And the, the, the issue there is that that policy basically missed out on the fundamental developmental imperatives that governments in the region have. So when you think about the leadership of the UAE, Qatar, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and Iran, um, let alone the other countries in the region that are smaller and less wealthy, they are facing a significant challenge. They need to navigate a um, energy transition that is coming up. So countries that are oil dependent need to diversify their economies. They face significant climate risks because these are countries that are now some of the hottest places in the world and there's uh, major water shortages. And they are in the middle of this big geopolitical flux that we find ourselves in where post-Ukraine invasion, uh, with these growing tensions between the U.S. and China, it's difficult to understand kind of where that security architecture that the U.S. had provided the Middle East is going to sort of end up, notwithstanding the reduced U.S. footprint in Iraq and the withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan. So taking all of that together, the I think the U.S., has an important role to play in the region, but it needs to be an enabler of the good things that the region is trying to do for itself. So an enabler of multilateral diplomacy among regional countries, a provider of technology and financial resources um, in a broader and less exclusionary sense among countries in the region. So there's a very specific example of this when the Biden administration was in negotiations to fully restore the Iran nuclear deal, and there was a, a real effort to do that, and it's a shame that it didn't come to fruition. We don't have time to unpack why that was, <laughs> maybe on another episode. But, okay. um, All right. you know, there was this idea that uh, part of the dividend for Iran in getting sanctions relief this time round, unlike 2016, was that the Arab neighbors would be able to benefit from the removal of those restrictions. They could start trading with Iran for the first time, something they were not interested in doing in 2016. But the mentality in the region has shifted and everyone realizes that economic integration is a good thing if you want to keep uh, create win-win scenarios that help build 
uh, more understanding and more stability. Um, and to my mind, there is a role for the U.S. to basically get out of the way of that process a little bit. I'm not suggesting that all of the sanctions on Iran are lifted unilaterally or anything to that extent. But let's say our ally, the UAE or Saudi Arabia, comes to us and says, we want to you know, move in this direction with Iran. We see some progress on the diplomatic side. And to shore up that progress, we'd like to do a little bit of trade. We'd like to provide some financial facilities. On a case-by-case basis, I think those types of engagements should be permitted by the U.S. There is, in fact, one precedent where in Iraq, the U.S. provides a waiver so that Iraq can purchase electricity from Iran to meet its domestic requirements. So if we can do it in that case, I think we can do it in other cases And that would be a representation of a slightly new approach to the region where we're enabling good things to happen rather than trying to be kind of the architects of all of the aspects of how these countries relate to one another. Yeah, the U.S. policy, I mean, what I've observed uh, since back in the early 90s when I deployed over there on USS Ranger uh, for the start of Operation Southern Watch has been our, our focus has been almost solely on the security aspects of the region. Uh, And we have really downplayed, uh, you know, the economic opportunities that were there to help the region develop that way. Uh, Let me let me pivot to a quick question. Mohammed bin Salman, crown prince in Saudi Mm. Arabia, Mm -hmm. he's portrayed as this uh, as this as a as a reformer. And, And to be fair, he has done a lot of things in Saudi Arabia to, to change Saudi society. He's also embraced a lot of economic uh, development, it looks like to me, at least from the, from the outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, where is that going in the region? I mean, is he sort of like the spearhead of a, of a fundamentally transitioned region where economic development becomes the norm as opposed to uh, security standoffs uh, amongst countries in the region? And is Iran going to be pulled into that under this new relationship? So I'm sure he'd love to be called the spearhead. Um, <laughs> I think it would uh, it would be a real uh, uh, feather in his cap. Um, you know, I, in some ways, I think he's following the lead of the UAE and Mohammed bin Zayed, the, the ruler of, of the UAE and, and Abu Dhabi. Um, I think that they, in some ways, made those steps towards Iran first, and it, it demonstrated to Saudi Arabia that that was something that they should consider doing. We should be very clear The Iran will remain in a tough relationship with the UAE and Saudi Arabia in many respects. These countries are rivals in energy markets. They're rivals for regional influence. But if we were to be very optimistic, I think it's worth considering the historical parallel between kind of the long-standing rivalries between a country like Germany and France, you know, sharing a border, fighting many, many wars. Um, but now today, part of an integrated economic zone where they argue all the time over the nitty gritty of policy, but they recognize that the success of their national developmental projects is tied to the success of a regional kind of environment. And I'm not suggesting we're going to get a European Union in the Middle East anytime soon, but the simple idea of economic engagement uh, amongst these countries was almost heretical until pretty recently. And to the extent that it's something that MBZ would uh, or MBS would even entertain, having Iran as a trade partner for their countries 
Um, it, that's something we ought to support through a research agenda, through policy initiatives, and also just through this idea of um, kind of giving a, a public airing to those ideas and recognizing them as as new and valuable and optimistic. And so that's, you know, it's hard to be an optimist about the Middle East, but you know, I've tried very hard in the last few years to find something positive to say about where things might be heading for Iran. The domestic situation is quite negative in many respects, but the regional environment is in some ways improving. And we just hope that this can be a sustainable improvement and that may uh, lead to some better outcomes within Iran as well. So Esfan Yarbat Manjelic, we have covered a lot of ground this this morning uh, over the last hour. Uh, we really haven't even touched on sort of the competition factor between Saudi Arabia and Iran or the fact that uh, really Egypt and even Turkey are competing for sort of regional hegemony with those two nations as well. Maybe I can have you on again at some point in the future and we can have a, a, a an even more broader or I should say a broader discussion about that, that, that competition amongst uh, those nations for regional uh, uh, control or influence. We only have uh, literally one minute left. <laughs> I think we can go over a minute or so, but I want to give you sort of the last word. I always like to give my uh, my guests the last word on the show. What thoughts do you want to leave with our listeners regarding political, economic, or security situation in the Middle East connected specifically to the Islamic Republic of Iran? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I say this as an Iranian-American. I think we're in a real transition point, um, and Iran is in a different point than it was 10 years ago. The region is in a different point. And the biggest thing I can say is, is this idea that U.S. policy needs to itself be adaptable and show that it can catch up with the times. We've basically used the same playbook on Iran, the playbook that Juan wrote long ago um, in the uh, final days of the Bush administration uh, for the last 15 years. And I think it's time for an update to that playbook. That process is really an in, what you would call an interagency process. It involves the State Department, DOD, Treasury, the intelligence agencies, and of course, the White House um, coming to grips with the idea that you need a new direction to um, address the realities of Iran and the region. The problem is, we don't have a lot of bandwidth. You know, the world is in a crazy flux. The administration's worried about China. There's the war in Ukraine. And of course, there's an election coming up. And so we were in a period in the early 2000s where the Middle East was the be all end all of US national security. It was the ultimate priority. And so it got a lot of attention. We're in this funny situation now where attention is waning a little bit at precisely the moment that we need to do a reinvention of US policy. And I'm hoping that some folks in Congress will continue to pay attention to uh, what's happening in the Middle East and be open to new ideas. And I'm hoping that, you know, if not during this term, uh, the next U.S. president uh, will continue to place a priority here because this remains a pivotal region for the world and by extension, of course, for the U.S. place in the world. And we'll have to leave it, uh, leave it there for this episode of uh, National Security This Week. Uh, Esfandiar Batman-Gelich, founder of the Middle East and Central Asia-focused think tank Bors and Bazaar Foundation, uh, headquartered in London. Thank you so much for joining us today from London on National Security This Week. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure. Folks, that closes this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. 
Have a great finish to your week, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series. 